Okay, well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in. You can see where we're at today on Isaiah part two. We're going to continue on in the teaching of Isaiah. Why don't we start with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day of corporate worship, the privilege of gathering with a local assembly of your new covenant people to give our hearts to you, these hearts that you have brought from death to life in joy-filled worship. We know that not all of us come today with necessarily full of joy because of perhaps trials that we're going through or difficulties that we're having or a season of dryness, but we know that you have given us uh, a cause, a reason for, for great joy, and you've given us a hope that endures. You have set your love upon us. So we do pray that you would refresh and revive our hearts again today for worship, that you would encourage us, help us, strengthen us, encourage and uh, guide us. And we pray that in this class, as we begin our time together today, that you would illumine our hearts to understand the teaching of your word, especially in, this, in the prophecies of Isaiah. And we ask that you would give us understanding and then that our understanding would lead to a greater knowledge of you, a greater understanding of your mighty work of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so we pray your blessing upon our time to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay. All right. So just a, a little bit of review here. The last time I started into the teaching of Isaiah, but we only got to... Yeah, book of Isaiah is teaching about God. So you can kind of see we, we covered the subject of God. Now we're going to continue. And I'm going to just open with what how the book of Isaiah, the, the oracles of Isaiah, how they speak to the issue of humanity and the condition of mankind. And uh, first of all, starting with Israel. Israel in the book of Isaiah is described as a harlotrous wife to God. Israel was God's old covenant people, and God frequently used the, the image of the covenant of marriage to describe his covenant relationship with his people. And they were described as a harlotrous wife, an adulterous wife to him, because they had broken their covenant with him. And they had done that through idolatry, and immorality. So if you actually turn to the first oracle of the book, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, you can see this very clearly. For instance, in verses 4 through 6, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. I will just stop. We're not going to be able to read all these verses that I have on here, but I just want to do a lot of reading today. If you look at verses 12 through 15, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So the point being that he's disgusted by their the fact that they keep coming. They keep observing the feast days and keep coming to the temple to offer sacrifices, even though they're practicing blatant injustice in their daily life. So if you look down to verse 17, he's, he tells them, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. Right. So it's not that they stopped their religious activity, but their religious activity was, was hip- hypocritical. Much like Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their external religion. And then uh, verses 23 and 20, 21 through 23, you see the idolatry and immorality come together how the un- how the f- how the faithful city Jerusalem has become a whore she who was full of justice righteousness lodged in her perhaps thinking of the days of 
for instance, David. But now, murderers, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause has not come to them. So, you know, we think in our nation of the moral degradation, and there is nothing new under the sun, truly, that this is the what every nation will do left to themselves, and Israel was no exception here. Um, the, the difference is that Israel had great privilege. Even given the old covenant, they'd been... Uh, given the law of God, but they forsook God. They were like a harlotrous wife to him. And as a result of this, Israel is described throughout the book as being under God's righteous judgment for their sin. So if you, if you flip over to, you know, this is just one example, but if you flip over to chapter 5, he has this, he starts out with the song of the vineyard. And he talks about his beloved vineyard. So Israel is often described as a vineyard in the Old Testament or a vine, uh, which, by the way, is the background to John 15 when Jesus is described as the true vine who is fruitful, right? Israel is God's vine that doesn't bear any fruit or bears bad fruit. And, and he, so he sings this song of, you know, of woe over his vineyard whom he had tended and given every opportunity to grow good fruit, and yet, what do they do? They produce bad fruit. So he says, I'm going to tear you down. And then you have this oracle of woe upon Israel. So verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, but they may, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine and flames, flames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. They are honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. You see, so he's picturing his old covenant people have become degenerate and morally, spiritually, and he says, therefore, they're going to go into exile. And he pictures Sheol, the abode of the dead, opening up its mouth underneath them and swallowing them up whole, right? So his judgment is upon them for their sin. And this is just one of many oracles of judgment upon Israel for their sin. Next, it's not just Israel. He also, the oracles of Isaiah expand out this theme of judgment upon not just Israel, but upon the whole, the whole world of humanity. And the reason is because he condemns the whole world for their wickedness. And uh, you could so you could think of it this way: you have Israel sort of in the center, and then he moves out to speak to the nations that surround Israel: Moab and Edom and Philistia and Assyria and Babylon, etc. And then he and then there's oracles that just take in the whole scope of humanity, right? And so you see this throughout the book that God is the God of not just Israel but of the whole world, and He condemns the whole world for their wickedness. Um, and then, as we'll see, pronounces judgment oracles upon them. But let's just look at a few places here. Isaiah chapter 14, 4 through 5. Will you take up this taunt against the king of Babylon? How the oppressor has a seat, how the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers. So there you see just one example of the fact that the nations of the world he like Babylon he decries them for being oppressive and wicked and insolent right pride and wickedness characterizes the nations chapter 15 verses 1 through 3 another example here this is an oracle against the nation of Moab an oracle against Moab because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night. Moab is undone because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night. Moab is undone. 
He has gone up to the temple and to Debon, to the high places, to weep over Nebo and over Medeba. Moab wails. On every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. Now, here we see that God condemns the nations not only for their pride and wickedness, but also for their idolatry. And so here, in the midst of suffering, being laid waste, suffering judgment, what do the Moabites do? They go to the temple of their gods, right? So you see that that God condemns the nations for their wickedness and for their idolatry. In other words, he doesn't look at them and go, well, they're just doing the best they can with the revelation that they ha- they can't. And, you know, these gods are, are you know, just their way of reaching out to the one true God. He, he condemns them for worshiping false gods. They're responsible for it. Chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. We have heard the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. This is a very common theme in the oracles. A great aspect of the reason God condemns the nations is because of their lofty pride, human pride and insolence before God, and their boasting. So you think of Nebuchadnezzar, look, you know that famous scene in Daniel where he looks out over his realm and says, "Look at this, you know, this realm that I have established." And then God struck him for seven years. It's a very common theme in prophets: the pride of men, the pride of humanity. Isaiah 19, verses 2 and 3. I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against cities, kingdom against kingdom. You think of this common way that God would deliver, uh, like when Israel invaded Canaan, one of, and, and, or in the book of Judges, when they would fight their enemies, God would often deliver them, give them a victory by turning... their enemy into confusion so that they fought one another, right? It was a a judgment, a temporal judgment that he would bring. And and here is being described that that's going to happen to the Egyptians. And then it says, And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols and sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. So you see that it's pride, it's wickedness, and immorality as well as all kinds of false spirituality you know mediums and magic and all kinds of stuff and so again there's nothing new under the sun right (laughs) it's just it's always been the same in just different different forms so if we go back another thing we see then is that not only are there judgment oracles upon individual nations um, for their idolatry and immorality, there's there's a whole section of the book where he just goes from one nation to the next and utters oracles of judgment against them. But there's also these oracles like this in Isaiah 24. If you turn there, a judgment oracle against the whole world. Let's just read a, a little bit here. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be... As with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. In other words, there's not going to be any partiality. Great and small will all perish. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. Etc. Etc. So a judgment oracle against the whole earth. Oftentimes you will hear people say things like, it's not fair that God would send people to hell from other countries who have never had a chance to hear the gospel. And I just want you to see that when you, when you read the prophets, you really can't come away with that opinion, can you? You see that there is enough revelation given to all humanity to make them accountable. He speaks here of humanity as having transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, right? 
How? How? Well, because, as Paul says in Romans 1, they have enough knowledge about God to, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They have, in chapter 2 of Romans, the work of the law written on their heart so that their own conscience will condemn them in the day of judgment. So we, the, no one is going to stand before God in the day of judgment and say, this isn't fair. Right? Because we're, humanity is fallen. Humanity is sinful. And not just a little sinful, right? <laughs> Deeply corrupt and wicked. And, and so God rightly judges the nations. And when he brings judgment upon the whole world, when he empties it out, when he twists its surface, when he makes it devoid of inhabitants, as we see here, that will not be in any way an unjust act. Right? So this is the teaching of Isaiah regarding humanity. And I want to throw one more thing in here. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 10, one of the things that you see that God does is he brings, he uses one nation to judge another, right? <laughs> So he judges Assyria with Babylon. He judges Babylon with Persia. He judges Israel with Babylon. (laughs) He judges Israel with Assyria and Judah with Babylon. So he brings these temporal judgments by raising up one nation to crush another, right? But that doesn't mean that this nation that he raises up as an instrument of judgment against another is somehow righteous or exempt from judgment themselves. And this is something that you see in Isaiah 10, for instance. So Isaiah 10, he says, verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, Israel, I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. You see, he's picturing Assyria as like a rod in his hand with which he is striking his own people in judgment. So they're the instrument of his judgment. He, it's by his command that they came against the northern kingdom of Israel and sacked Samaria and taken, took the northern kingdom away in, 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 uh, in judgment. But then look at verse 12. When the Lord has finished all this work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. And the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By my strength and my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom. For I have understanding, and I remove the boundaries of the peoples and plunder their hands. You know, 14. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. Right? And then verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify himself against the one who wields it? You see, verse 16, Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled. So, he's basically saying, Assyria, he raised up Assyria to bring judgment against his people. But they didn't have good motivations in that. They acted in pride and arrogance, and they were wicked in the things that they did. And so he turns around and judges Assyria as well. So, What you see is there's divine sovereignty in there, raising up one nation to crush another as an act of judgment, and yet there's human responsibility in the wicked actions that they carried out in the process. And so Isaiah is is one of these books, many, many places in Scripture, where you can see this clear teaching of divine sovereignty over all and yet human responsibility and that the two are compatible and you might it might stretch the boundaries of your understanding to figure out how does this fit together and yet it's just clearly taught in scripture so one of these mysteries like the the person of Christ two natures one person or the trinity you know one being in three persons that we don't we can't sort it all out in our heads. It's you know his ways are higher than ours. He, he's incomprehensible in some ways to us. But but there's things clearly taught in Scripture that we must affirm as true and compatible. And this is one of them. This issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Okay, so just some teaching on humanity in Isaiah. Any any questions on this? Okay, salvation. The Lord promises, in the midst of all that I've said, He promises to rescue Israel out of their captivity and exile with a mighty hand. Okay, so let's just look at Isaiah 52 real quick. 
This is a redemption oracle. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. And then he talks about how the no more will they be invaded, right? And then he says, For thus says the Lord, verse 3, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went out at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all day, all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak to them. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then he, he talks about the joy, you know, that they're going to, at this good news that God is coming. And then verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who hear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in, in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel shall be your rear guard. You see, this is Exodus language, isn't it? There, he's going to bring them out of exile, and he's going to lead them at their head so that they're not going to have to rush out. But he's going to lead them out. And there's an announcement of good news that God is going to do this that will fill them with great joy. And so there's this promise of return out of exile. And by the way, you recognize some of those passages probably. The passage of come out of her, you see in Revelation 19, the great oracle of the judgment of, of Babylon and his people coming out and the the good news of great joy and publishing peace or the message of peace that too is referred to in the new testament so there's this promise of return out of exile there's also that the lord would bring them back to the land and restore the nation so when he brings them out he's going to bring them back and so if you look at isaiah 44 Verses 21 through 28. It's just one example. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgression like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from your womb. I am the Lord who, makes, who, has, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I will raise up their ruins." Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying to Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So he's saying, I'm the creator. I created you and it's me, the creator, who's telling you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redeem you. And at the very end, you see he even names, this is, you know, this is before the exile <laughs> he names the persian king who would send them back out of exile which of course that initial return out of exile under cyrus was just a a foretaste of the full redemption that he portrays in this oracle don't a lot of scholars think that's why i say it was written after the yep it's part of the reason why you know i said chapters 40 through 66 are thought these could not have been possibly written by isaiah because he could have not have predicted future events in such specificity. You know, they look at a text like that and go, <laughs> well, obviously, that was someone who saw these things already happen. There's no way he could have named Cyrus by name. Come on. He would forgive and renew his people, and he would restore his relationship with them. Let's, let's go over to Isaiah 54. So there's this, you know, return out of exile, this... Re restoration to the land and then there's you know 
you see that what is that do you have a ESV you have a heading there what does it say yeah there's going to be a renewal of his relationship with them a new covenant if you will although the language of new covenant isn't used here well let's just read a little bit of this sing O barren one who did not bear break forth into singing and cry aloud you who have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married by the way that particular text i believe is the one cited in galatians 4 enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out do not hold back lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities fear not for you will not be ashamed be not a confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood will be. You will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. You see, there's a restoration of his relationship with them. He, they were a, a bride sent away with a certificate of divorce, Jeremiah said, into exile. And yet, he says, I will restore my relationship with you in great compassion, and my anger will be no more, and you will forget the shame of your youth. It's just such a wonderful passage once again, I will marry you, essentially. And then they would experience his blessing in fullness and that this blessing would last forever. So look at Isaiah 62. Let's just look at some sections. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation is a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name and the mouth of the Lord that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed Forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. And he just he goes on to describe the, the great blessings that that they would experience in the land. And there are many oracles like this that that describe it. The Lord has sworn, verse 8, By his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have, for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear its stones, Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. So just wonderful oracles promising joy and blessing when this restoration comes. And then almost finally, we see that the Lord would extend this salvation not only to Israel, but it would overflow the bounds of Israel and it would flow out to the Gentile nations as well. So there's many passages that we could look at, but let's just look at, first of all, a few verses. Isaiah 49, verse 6. These are famous verses that you have heard. Speaking to the Messiah, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see that 
picture of salvation overflowing the bounds of Israel and reaching out to the nations as well, to the ends of the earth. Uh, Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Uh, Isaiah 60, 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and the thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And by the way, he goes on to talk about these, about, to use the language of kings coming from other nations. Look at verse 7. They shall bring gold and frankincense to you. This light that arises on the nation, right? So, this is the chapter that the illusion that is being alluded to when the, the the wise men from the east bring gold and frankincense to the feet of Jesus when they come and and follow his star that the kings come and they follow the the star to the house of the Messiah and they bring gold and frankincense. This is the chapter being alluded to in Isaiah. Um, and then one more. This is just such a stirring account. It's uh, chapter nineteen, verses sixteen through twenty-five. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will bow, will know the Lord in that day, and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. It's just, you know, it's it's a somewhat cryptic oracle as to how what is being referred to here but but the idea is Egypt in the south and Assyria in the north there's worship of God taking place among all there's allegiance to the Messiah in all of these places in fact they're all three nations are now described as belonging to the Lord and so it's just one of many places in Isaiah where you see that somehow this redemption that's promised to Israel is going to encompass the nations as well Finally, ultimately, the Lord is going to liberate not just Israel, not just the nations in terms of redeeming them, but also he's going to liberate the entire creation from the effects of Adam's sin, from the curse and the fall. So there's description of the restoration of the entire created order. Obviously, in in Isaiah 65, you guys know this text, Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And then he, he describes this you know, wonderful picture of, of life, uh, of, of the created order being renewed and life in this, in this new condition. And we've talked about that before, so I won't spend a ton of time, but that's obviously what's referred to in places like 2 Corinthians 5.17, as well as Revelation 19, 2 Peter chapter 3. So, this is the teaching of salvation in the book of Isaiah. Any questions? All right. The Messiah. The Messiah is the agent through which God would accomplish the future redemption foretold in these oracles. Right? So, this redemption I've been talking about, how's it going to happen? Well, it's going to happen through this figure, God's ultimate anointed one, or the Messiah. Remember I talked about this? There's a sense in which you could say that the revelation of the Messiah 
It's like the light is flickered on and you have this little candle with a tiny little light in Genesis 3.15. You know, he shall be a seed of the woman, right? A, a man, a descendant of the woman. And then as, as scripture unfolds, it's like the light grows and you, you learn more and more about the Messiah. Well, by the time you come down here to Isaiah and the oracles of Isaiah, the revelation of who the Messiah would be becomes greater and greater. So, for instance, in this book, you see Isaiah 9-6, that he would be a man, right? Unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. And he's also God. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God. So he's a God, he's a man, he, he is God and man. Uh, Isaiah 7-14, it's somewhat cryptic, it's probably an oracle that speaks to the virgin birth of Christ by way of typology, but nevertheless, it's the oracle of a virgin shall conceive and give child. And, and the New Testament says that that was pointing to the virgin birth of Christ, of the Messiah. He's a Davidic king who would reign over all forever with perfect righteousness, establishing peace and justice. So, if, for instance, if you just go to Isaiah chapter 9, that famous oracle that we know of, if you look at uh, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. So Davidic king rules in righteousness and justice, brings peace to the earth, reign forever. And then also... One of the unique contributions of Isaiah is that the Messiah is portrayed, especially in chapters 40 through 66, as the servant of the Lord. Now, the idea of the servant of the Lord is one who comes to do the will of God. And there's a sense in which there is a, a, a lowliness to the idea of being the servant of the Lord. You know, you think of how Jesus captured this when he says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But the servant of the Lord, as he's revealed in, the, in Isaiah, is, is by no means a... Um, he's not merely lowly. Yes, he is a lowly servant of the Lord, but he's also royal and, and mighty. And so there's this juxtaposition of those two things. There are four what are called servant songs in Isaiah, four passages that reveal speak of the messiah as being the the servant of yahweh um it is a little bit confusing because some passages in isaiah in this in this section actually speak of israel as as the servant of the lord and you can tell it's talking about israel and not the messiah because it'll talk about him being redeemed from his sins and stuff like that and so israel is the servant of the lord but the messiah is the servant of the lord and that's, I think, that's intentional, that it, the servant of the Lord, the, the Messiah as the servant of the Lord is going to embody everything that Israel should have been, right? He's going to do the will of the Lord perfectly. So let's look at, it, at these. This is important that we take some time to look at these. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom, and whom my soul delights. By the way... When Jesus was baptized, what did, it, what did the voice from heaven say? Behold, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. Well, the, the language there actually does allude seemingly to the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament out of this particular passage. Although it uses the language of sonship rather than servant. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. What comes out of heaven to descend upon He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for him. So this is the same Davidic king. But he's described here as a servant, particularly anointed of the Spirit, right? That's what Messiah means, God's ultimate anointed one, right? You look at uh, Isaiah 49. 
This is the second servant song. It's a little bit more, you have to go a little bit deeper till you see the name servant. Let's, let's skip down to verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And it goes on. But there you see the second servant song, and clearly that passage, verse 6, is alluded, is cited in the New Testament with respect to Jesus. The third servant song is in Isaiah 50, verses 5-11. through 11. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. You know, that you recognize that that passage being cited in the New Testament when he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and moth will eat them up. Who among few fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And on and on. So there's a, a third servant song, and you see actually that this one, he's the righteous sufferer, the one who suffers for righteousness' sake, right? So this is a another of the servant songs that is portrays the, the Messiah as suffering for righteousness sake. But then of course the ultimate suffering servant the portrayal of the Messiah as the suffering servant is in Isaiah 52 13 through 53 12. There was probably a mistake here made in the placement of the verse divisions chapter divisions. Chapter division probably should have been at verse 13 in chapter 52. So let's start there. Behold my servant shall act wisely he shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. Notice this. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. By the way, the language of sprinkling, it's the idea of a priest sprinkling the blood of sacrifice, right? To cleanse. So he's marred beyond human semblance himself and yet he sprinkles many nations, not just Israel, many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of them. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And then, of course, as it goes on, you see him being presented as like a sacrificial lamb. He's, he's explicitly described as a sin offering in verse 10. His soul makes an offering for guilt. He bears the sins of the people. Their sins, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He takes the punishment for them. He was cut off out of the land of the living. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. So, he bears their sin in their place. And in the process, he makes many to be accounted righteous. There's justification. They aren't righteous, are they? They're wicked. But because their sins have been laid on him and the debt paid, they are accounted righteous. They are declared righteous in the sight of God. And what's interesting about this particular psalm, or servant song, is that there seems to be both a death and a resurrection. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief, verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And then it says, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So there's death, and then there's a prolonging of days. And there's a looking back on what he accomplished and a satisfaction with it. But by the way, you know, the New Testament seems to speak at times uh, as if Israel and the Jews should have clearly understood that there would be a death and resurrection of the Messiah. 
Now, and one of the ways I think we can see this is that throughout the prophets, for instance, you see these two pictures of the Messiah. One is a suffering Messiah who dies as a sacrifice in the place of his people. And the other is of a royal Messiah who reigns over all forever. Now, let me ask you, how could the Messiah, on the one hand, die, and on the other hand, reign forever? What would have to happen? There would have to be a resurrection from the dead. And so I think those, just the juxtaposition of those two portrayals points to the need for a resurrection in the Old Testament. Next, Isaiah is teaching about judgment. I'm going to go through these quickly here. The Lord is presented as the Lord is presented as the judge of all the earth, who looks down on mankind and evaluates the deeds of all mankind, both Israel and the nations. And what is the standard by which he judges all the nations? Does he have to sort of take into consideration their own personal standards? Do they get to define what truth is? No. It's his own righteous character. And he executes both temporal, raises up the Assyrians to judge the, to destroy the, the Israelites, raises up the Persians to destroy the Babylonians, but also eternal punishment for their sin. And this is just a clear picture. So he announces temporal judgment upon Jerusalem for their sins in Isaiah 22. In other words, that Jerusalem is going to fall and they're going to go away into exile. He announces temporal judgment upon various nations. Really, chapters 13 through 26, if you were to just skim through those, you'd see just judgment oracle after one judgment oracle after another, and he sort of works from Babylon through all the surrounding nations in the in the known world in that time in, in Mesopotamia, and then and then there's sort of then he focuses on Jerusalem uh, finally, Israel and Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. And he, there's like five judgment oracles upon them. But then he also announces a sort of final judgment. So there's near judgments and then there's the far judgment toward which all these other judgment, temporal judgments are a harbinger. So let's just look at this one passage, Isaiah 66. This is the very end of the book. This is how the book of Isaiah ends. After describing the new creation in Isaiah 65... And again, in Isaiah 66, he mentions the new creation. And then, this is how the book ends. Isaiah 66, 15-24. For behold, the Lord will come in fire in his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury in his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination of mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, and to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations." And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. And then here Jesus Jesus echoes these words on multiple occasions. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an, an abhorrence to all flesh. So you have this dramatic juxtaposition of people from all over the world who come now to worship the Lord with God's people. And at the same time, you have a, a universal judgment that is brought upon all, all the world for their sin so that those who remain, you might say, the remnant of people, both Israel and from the nations that worship the Lord, they see the, the result 
uh, those who are suff- who suffer God's judgment, and it's an eternal judgment. Their worm shall not die; their fire shall not be quenched. Right? That's a very sobering picture. That's how the book ends. I want to just we're going to look at this Isaiah and the New Testament. The New Testament, as I mentioned, Isaiah is the prophet who's most frequently cited in the New Testament. He, uh, first of all, Isaiah, the New Testament frequently cites Isaiah's references to the Messiah as being fulfilled in Jesus. So you can just look here, right? Isaiah 7.14, 8.14, all the way down. His virgin birth, he's the stumbling stone for Israel, he's the root of Jesse, he's the light that comes out of Galilee. He's the precious cornerstone. He's the servant of the servant songs, the servant ruler, the, the servant savior of the Gentiles, the suffering servant. He's the one whom the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, etc. Right? So the, the New Testament, over and again, you can see all the New Testament references where it explicitly cites these passages from Isaiah about the Messiah and says they're fulfilled in Jesus. And then also, it also describes the salvation foretold in Isaiah, even where it's not explicitly referencing the Messiah, but the redemptive work predicted in Isaiah as being fulfilled in Jesus. So, Isaiah chapter 10, we're not going to be able to go through all these, but Isaiah 10, it talks about a remnant of the Jews being saved. And in Romans 9, he cites that text to describe, you know, the question is, why are so many Israelites not being saved? The Messiah has come, you know. <laughs> what about your promises, Lord? And he says, well, not, as, not all Israel is Israel. It's always been a remnant. And he cites that text from Isaiah 10. Isaiah 40, the great 40th chapter, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, Matthew 3.3 3 says that voice was John the Baptist. Isaiah 56, this, this text where... It says Jesus went in, cleansed the temple. It was to be a house of prayer for all nations. Well, that little reference comes from a whole oracle of redemption about how God was going to save the nations in the last days. And so that, that little reference, a house of prayer for all nations, is alluding to this wonderful redemption oracle from Isaiah and indicating that Christ has come to bring it to pass, right? Isaiah 54 there's this little phrase here in John six forty five. Do you guys remember where he says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." And in the next verse, he says he quotes Isaiah, "As it is written, they shall all be taught of God." Well, he's referring to a, a larger redemption oracle in Isaiah fifty four, and indi- indicating that this people being taught of God. And, and, it, and it's, I think, referring to the inner work of regeneration that draws people to Christ is part of this redemption that was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 52, we actually read part of this. You know, remember, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It was, a, it was an entire oracle about how God was going to redeem Israel out of exile. Well, in Romans 10, Paul cites that as being now fulfilled in Jesus. And this is where he talks about how we are those messengers who are to bring the good news, right? How can they hear if they don't have a preacher? Isaiah 25 is the portrayal of death being swallowed up in victory. Well, that's, that's part of an, an entire redemption oracle. Paul says that when Christ returns on the last day and raises people from the dead, then that oracle will be fulfilled, finally. Uh, and then, of course, Isaiah 65, 17 and following about the new creation. Paul cites that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That oracle is beginning to be fulfilled now as people are brought from death to life and made new creations. But, of course, Revelation 21 says that it will be fulfilled finally when Christ returns. So, this is why I say the New Testament describes the salvation foretold in Isaiah as being fulfilled through Jesus for the church in a now and not yet way. So, not all at once, but in a now and not yet way. And then finally, there are a number of other citations of Isaiah, but, for instance, the passage in Isaiah 6 where it says, 
he tells Isaiah, you know, who shall go for me? I will go, Lord, send me. And then he tells them his mission. <laughs> go and speak so that hearing they may not hear <laughs> and seeing they may not see, right? Well, that, that passage about a judicial hardening of heart through the proclamation of the word as an act of judgment is cited many times in the New Testament, specifically with reference to the Jews, that as they heard, they were not hearing it, and that this was part of God's judicial hardening of them as a judgment for their, their rejection of him. Isaiah 11 and 59, when you go to Isaiah Ephesians 6 and the description of the armor of God, that, those are actually, you can see it in your cross-references. He's alluding to oracles of Isaiah, where the Lord, Yahweh, is described as wearing armor. <laughs> and in Ephesians 6, guess what? Paul says, you put on the armor of God. That armor is given to you. Wow, that's, that's incredible, right? Uh, Isaiah 29, uh, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That was part of a, of a judgment oracle on Israel that he cites there. He says, it's still true of you today, right? Isaiah 29, the whole reference to the potter and the clay. Shall the potter say to the one who made it, you know, why did you make me like this? There's multiple references to potter and clay Im imagery, but the one that he cites in Romans 9 is from Isaiah 29. Peter cites from Isaiah 40, um, and, and Paul does as well in, in Isaiah 40. That's multiple times Isaiah 40 is referred to. This is, you know, the word of the Lord shall abide forever. All flesh is like grass. This is the famous doxology at the end of Romans 11. You know, who, who shall speak to him and who shall be his counselor? Isaiah 59. You remember the famous passage in Romans 3 where he says, All are under sin. And then he begins citing Old Testament texts. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. They, they run to do wickedness. Well, Paul cites from Isaiah as, as one of those texts. The whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, where he talks about the wisdom of the gospel and how it's foolishness to the Jews and, and uh, a, stumbling, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to us it's the wisdom of God. Well, he's drawing upon Isaiah 64 in, at the end of that when he says, what eye has not seen and no ear has heard, what, I, what God has shown to you. And he's basically talking, it, referencing one of these glorious redemption oracles, how God would give wisdom to his people, this special wisdom to his people. And he, Paul's saying, this is it, the gospel. It's the great wisdom that Isaiah was talking about. And then finally, of course, I mentioned it, but the description of hell in Isaiah 66, their worms shall not burn, the fire will not die out. Jesus would refer to that on multiple occasions. This is just one as a description of, of the, the ultimate end of the wicked. So you see, Isaiah is, you know, the New Testament is just shot through with Isaiah. It clearly had an outsized influence upon their understanding of the person and work of Jesus, as well as providing the background for many other themes in the New Testament. Okay, well, we're over time. Um, let me close this in prayer. Hopefully, between these two sessions, we've at least given you a, an, an overview, a helpful overview of the book of Isaiah. And uh, I love just reading through portions of it because it's just such a wonderful book to read, although it is shocking at times and seems almost too good to be true at times, right? So let's, let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for our time just marinating in the oracles that you delivered through the prophet Isaiah, though they were centuries and centuries before the coming of Christ, they, they spoke of his day, they spoke of who he was and what he would accomplish, and uh, you have revealed yourself in, in such a, a mighty and clear way through the prophet that we could know you that we could relate to you accordingly. Father, we just pray that you would take this book and even the, the passages that we've read this morning that you would mold and shape our thinking with them, that, that, we would, that we would know you in truth, that we would put off foolishly small and man-made ways of thinking about you, and that we would know you as you have revealed yourself. And even in places where we might struggle with the language 
of these oracles and how stark at times they are, as well as how glorious that you would help us to embrace both, that we would be filled with joy and wonder as we see the promises of redemption and that we would be filled with with awe and holy reverence and a horror of over human sin as we hear the judgment oracles. And Lord, that as we read through the prophets and study them together, all of the prophets, that you would do this great work of helping us to know you in truth, helping us to understand who we are, understand the world better, understand your purposes of salvation and judgment, to understand the person and work of Christ, to know more what is coming in the future, that we might be filled with the knowledge of you and that your word would just dwell richly within us. And even today, as we've read through some these portions of Isaiah, that they would ring in our minds and renew us and help us to grow spiritually. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.